Hello and welcome to the third programme in this series of Faber podcasts celebrating the centenary of Benjamin Britten's birth. This programme tackles the most controversial aspect of Britten's biography, the sequence of relationships he had throughout his life with adolescent boys. My principal guest in this programme is filmmaker and Britten expert John Bridcutt, who produced a documentary and subsequently wrote a book entitled Britten's Children. In the preface to that book, John Bridcutt writes... Although Britain wrote extensively for children and about children, this aspect of his work has received surprisingly little attention, perhaps out of concern that, if too many stones were dislodged, something nasty might crawl out. Nonetheless, Humphrey Carpenter's controversial 1992 biography of Britain, published by Faber, had made the composer's sexuality the prism through which his life and works were interpreted. I began by asking John if, when he said about finding and interviewing the boys who had been the subjects of Britain's infatuations, he had any idea what he would discover. I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I'd read Humphrey Carpenter's book long before and was aware that it's a very edgy subject. But I found it a really interesting subject to tackle because I was conscious then, this was ten years ago now, that there was a lot of Hysteria is too strong a word, but a lot of excitement about the whole business of relationships between adult men and boys. And there have been cases of people talking about sexual abuse and so on. And, and I felt that this was a subject that was seen through a very limited prism. And what seemed to be the case to me, and this was confirmed as my researches went on, was that Britain was a very important person in the lives of these boys at the time. It wasn't something that they were alarmed about. Perhaps some of their family may have been, some of Britain's friends may have been. But there is such a thing as a close relationship of a non-invasive kind of any sort between a young teenager, an adolescent boy, and the first adult outside his own family that he gains the trust of. So what struck me was that there are gradations in these relationships, which it was important to explore instead of just having a knee-jerk reaction and feeling that a close relationship of this kind was automatically something suspicious and inviting censure. I asked John how many of these boys he had managed to track down. I spoke to, I suppose, 15 or 16 of these friends of Britain, and that's most of them, of the particular friends that he'd had. And I was struck by the, the real enjoyment these now middle-aged or elderly men had in recalling the memory. They were sometimes quite amused by realising how strange and odd it seemed that they had this close friendship with with Britain and I'm sure that in today's climate he would not have been able to sustain these friendships in the same way. Clearly there are two contrasting dangers when it comes to the music. One is to claim that Britain's sexuality had no influence on what he wrote but the other is to claim that it determined everything. I think it's a mistake to think that all the music is governed by his thoughts about relationships and, and, and any sort of sexual element. Humphrey Carpenter, I think, makes that mistake and he, he tries to, to find these elements in, 
in the most unlikely pieces of orchestral music, for instance. But it's, you cannot deny that it's there for some of them. It's clearly a focus of a lot of the operas. His operas, I mean, he used to resent the fact that people talked, talked about his operas as being about the loss of innocence. But then there was one occasion when he did admit, he said, well, yes, I suppose looking at them, it is about the loss of innocence. He knew, so he knew that. But at the same time, it's about people who are on the outside, you know, who, who are not part of the crowd. And I think that's where he felt, he, he never felt he was part of the crowd and he was always a bit of an outsider, whether through being a pacifist, whether through being a homosexual, whether through just simply being a musician and being a composer. After all, people you know, said to him when he was a boy, what do you want to be? And he said, I want to be a composer. And he said, yes, but what else? Which was actually not an unreasonable question in the time. There weren't many professional composers. And so I think he was, he was driven by that, by that feeling of outsiderness. And this sometimes expressed itself in the sort of vulnerabilities of boys and of children. You know, the little sweep the boy who is who is the, the sweep is the sort of the victim you know he's he's doing a a terrible job and he is identified as being someone who excites the the pity and sympathy of these well-to-do children in the house um, he's come to sweep the chimney off it's true of the apprentice in peter grimes it's true of the dead boy in curly river these are important elements that britain found he could dig deep into his own psyche and into his own experience to understand what it was like for these boys and for the adults who related to them. I mean, The Turn of the Screw is a classic case. The Turn of the Screw, I think, is perhaps one of his most fascinating pieces and the key to this business of what his operas are about. I spoke to composer Colin Matthews about the relationship between the life and the work. He worked with Britain on the score of Death in Venice, about which he had reservations, some of them to do with its seemingly overt autobiographical character. I did find it difficult. I, I mean, I felt that it was, for one thing, it seemed to be almost too personal a subject. It was, it was telling a story which had almost happened in Britain's life, because when The Turn of the Screw was first performed. I mean, Britain uh, had this obsession with David Hemmings, the, the, the young David Hemmings who played the first role. And in fact, the first performance was in Venice. And it seemed to me that this was almost a portrayal of what had happened. Although nothing actually happened, I should put it, but I mean, it, you know, Britain had, had did find Hemmings you know, a, an extraordinary figure and was obsessed with him. So that aspect of it I found I found rather difficult. And I, I also felt, and still feel to some extent, that, that Thomas Mann's story is so complex that to actually reduce it to the simplicity needed for a libretto was actually diminishing it in a way. And I felt while I was working on it that dramatically it didn't really hold up. While I was doing the vocal score, I, I had the sense that the music was it seemed to me almost perilously thin in texture. Now, this was something, as soon as I worked on the full score, I realised I'd been quite wrong. In fact, as soon as Britain put colour into it, it, it brought it to life. And also, dramatically, it worked better on stage than I could possibly have imagined. And I, I do think that most of it works extraordinarily well. It's the most remarkable opera. But I, there are reservations that remain with me, and they're, they're mainly to do with the libretto. So The Loss of Innocence is part of the story. 
but Britain's portrayal of nascent sexuality is more complex than that. There is a part reserved for knowingness, for complicity, John Bridcut believes. That's the thing. I mean, I think, you know, this is a, an area of this subject that people nowadays are incredibly sensitive about and resistant to. To my mind, it's perfectly possible for children who are on the threshold of puberty, of, of sexual maturity, to be complicit to some extent in their relations with adults. They can even become manipulative. I mean, it's, it's not to say that adults shouldn't be able to deal with that and control themselves in that situation, but it is a factor. And I think Britain knew that. And in the turn of the screw, you see the example of this young boy of 12, whatever he is, 13, who is undoubtedly complicit in that he is aware of Peter Quint's interest in him and he's responding to it. He is both innocent and complicit. And that's an interesting paradox. It's the reason why Britain chose David Hemmings to sing the role, because David Hemmings didn't have a particularly good voice, but he had the knowingness that Britain felt was absolutely right for the part. And I think he thought, we'll get the voice working. But this young boy has got a sort of cheeky, uh, mischievous glint in his eye that was about, it, it was, he was far more knowing than he should have been for his years. And that's what Colin Graham, the producer, said about David Hemmings. And it's what makes Miles work in the, in the opera. If you get him played by a boy who is completely, completely sort of pallid, it doesn't work so well. The, the key to the opera is the aria Marlowe, when Miles sings about the different meanings, all of them slightly sexually elusive, of the Latin word Marlowe. And it's, it comes out of a, almost out of a clear blue sky as he sings this, and the music is so suggestive and um, sinister. And his governess can hear this in the music and is sort of alarmed by it and actually thrilled as well because she can see this is the, the, the first signs of a young adult um, who is in her charge. Britain knew exactly what he was doing when he was writing this, this music, which is so... Uh, sinister and you just know that as he's singing these apparently innocent words Miles is completely aware of the significance of them. From the stage back to the real world in conclusion I asked John how Britain's relationships with teenage boys tended to end. It's hard to be precise about that I and mean, the, the, the main evidence for this is perhaps the strongest relationship he had which was with Roger Duncan the son of his librettist, Ronald Duncan, who he had amazingly persuaded, he persuaded Ronald Duncan to share his son with him. And the Duncans had a rather dysfunctional marriage, let's put it like that. And so it was a difficult home life that Roger Duncan had. And he said to Ronald, you know, I'd like to share him with you. And this man agreed. They shared Roger during the holidays from school. He spent two weeks with Ben and two weeks with his father, with his parents. This lasted for about six or seven years. And then, as he came to the end of his school days, there's a letter in which Britain is writing to E.M. Forster about him and said, Roger's become very glossy at Harrow. And um, he obviously found him 
too grown up and too sophisticated, inverted commas. There was an occasion which Roger's sister Bryony told me about when Britain turns up to spend some time with Roger when he's presumably now an, a sort of older teenager, bringing another boy with him, a young friend, which Roger found incredibly hurtful. And I asked Roger about that and he, he clearly found it painful even to think about now. And I think this was Britain indicating to him, your time is through, you know. He didn't cut him off and they continued to correspond intermittently for the rest of Britain's life. But it was downgraded. And the other people who told me, yes, you know, he used to write once a fortnight, something like that, amazingly often. And then it was downgraded. And then I'd just get birthdays and Christmas cards and, and gradually it would be phased out. I was talking to John Bridkett and Colin Matthews about the aspect of Benjamin Britten's life, which, after his music, is likely to continue to attract most attention. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Faber to mark the Britain centenary. There are full details about the books in Britain published by Faber on the website at faber.co.uk. These include John Bridcut's Britain's Children and his companion to the life and work, Essential Britain, and also Humphrey Carpenter's controversial biography. Further episodes in this series will be appearing throughout the autumn, so I hope you'll want to listen to them all. For the moment, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.